listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jovelyn Richards. Welcome to Cover to Cover Javelin's Bistro. Uh, it's good. Be- it's good to be back with you today. And today I am going. We're going to take a look at a book called White Knights, Black Paradise. And as always, I choose to have you listening audience as my uh, co-host. And so the number to call with questions, things that I may miss or things that is popping on your mind as you begin to listen to the interview, I encourage you to call five one zero. So my guest today is Sikivu Hutchinson. She'll correct um, the pronunciation of her name. She's the author of Imagining Transit, Race, Gender, and Transportation, Politics in Los Angeles, Moral Comeback, Black Atheist, Gender Politics and Value Wars, and Godless Americana, Race and Religious Rebels. In this book, She's taking the journey through three fictional characters as we come up on the anniversary of Jonestown, Jim Jones, for those who remember that. And it was a surprise to me that she is the only writer and political analyst that is actually looking at the black women and children that was following Jim Jones and and died. Uh, Most times uh, that I've seen any documentary on Jim Jones and uh, Jonestown, it has not been um, through the lens of uh, black women and what happened. So I want to welcome Ms. Hutchinson to the show today. Hello and how are you? Good, thanks. Glad (laughs) to be here. Good, great. So... As I'm setting this up in terms of you've chosen to take three characters, fictional characters, and to move inside this story to what is it that you wanted to reveal um, beyond the fact that it was it was a, a large number of black people that followed Jim Jones? What was also at the that you wanted us to know as an audience, as readers, and as listening to the story unfold? Well, I want to bring forward the complexity and the nuance that informed the journeys of these women. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this was a movement that spanned two and a half decades. It originated in Indianapolis in 1955, around the time of the Montgomery bus boycott. It was a social justice-oriented, progressive church. Jim Jones founded it as a young white man who was very much black-identified, very much identified with the civil rights movement, had initiated a number of programs and initiatives in the Indianapolis community, really against the Jim Crow regime of that city and had actively recruited and worked with African-American parishioners. So this was the foundation of People's Temple. Black women were very instrumental to articulating this vision of, you know, multiracial, um, equity-oriented, social progressive church activism. It was a Pentecostal church. It was another point of attraction for African-American women and working-class black folks. But these are things that are not typically foregrounded when we think about people's temple and when we think about 
the downward spiral of Jonestown. So I wanted to highlight those elements and also look at the degree to which African-American women were really coming into people's temples and the social justice movement by dint of the great migration and the promise and the hope of opportunity, of equality, of redemption in the North and in the Midwest. And in many regards, People's Temple is an encapsulation of those hopes and dreams. So that was one element. I also wanted to really look at the, the different strands of belief and non-belief that informed involvement in People's Temple. People's Temple, as I mentioned earlier, was originated as a Pentecostal church, but over the span of its lifetime from 1958 to 1978, it encompassed myriad you know, ideological uh, cultural belief systems, you know, epistemologies, theologies, what have you. There were people who were, again, coming in as dyed-in-the-wool, you know, Christians, evangelicals, Pentecostals. There were some folk who were coming from a more, you know, secular, you know, agnostic, atheist, uh, you know, non-theist perspective. Mm-hmm. So these are also elements, you know, that weave into the narrative and to the lives of my characters also wanted to focus on the fact that he had incredible, you know, gender and sexuality diversity within People's Temple. Uh, the two lead protagonists are sisters who identify as agnostic and atheist, respectively. Uh, one is straight, one is lesbian. Um, the lesbian older sister, you know, comes into the temple as a skeptic, as a cynic, and is eventually won over by her lover and partner, who is very much a loyalist, within people's temple and unfortunately uh, succumbs to a lot of the group think and brutal harassment that informed the downward spiral of the church movement and compelled its exodus to Guyana uh, as early as the 1970s, excuse me, the early 1970s. So when you when you start off the, the novel, you have the two sisters driving and one has just um, had her second or third abortion. Yeah. And then there's also being inside of a frame of the different levels of race that is happening in their own personal lives. What was the intention? Yes. And so what creative choice did you want to did you make to to bring us right there? Here's a woman whose sister is paid for several abortions for her. And then also the sister is a mathematician. And I may be being elaborate with that. They're saying mathematician, but she's brilliant with numbers. And and so but in school, she's thrown back to being third grade and being treated in such a way. Or were you framing us to sort of sit inside of the world of of these black women characters as they're moving through this journey towards Jonestown? Yeah, I, I wanted to, to highlight the factors that might have compelled them to become involved in this church that was very much aligned with the disenfranchised communities of the Bay Area, um, in particular in California in general. Um, People's Temple had a church in Los Angeles, in the MacArthur Park area. And these churches were predominantly African-American. They were, you know, at least 75% African-American. So these are some of the compelling factors that make them more attracted to the ethos and the demographics and the ideology of People's Temple. So these are our sisters that are having these traumatic experiences. You know, they're coming over from Indianapolis coincidentally 
and looking to California and the West Coast and the Bay Area as the space of possibility, as a space of renewal, um, as a space of equal employment. And those dreams are precipitously dashed over the period of several years. And this is what anchors them to people's temple, ultimately, that you have this, this multiracial, multicultural community. You have this black-identified white pastor who is, you know, very much speaking the language and the rhetoric of black power, is connecting with major, you know, black progressive and radical organizations like the Nation of Islam, like uh, Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco, like the Black Panthers, connecting with individuals like Angela Davis. So this was all extremely compelling for African-American folk who viewed the traditional black church, you know, during this era, the mainline, you know, black church, as really being marginal, as being bankrupt in many regards, you know, when it came to the bread and butter grassroots needs of working class African-American communities, particularly in the Fillmore district. And so you, you and I talked about this a little bit in our pre-interview together. How did you come upon this story and what intrigued you to to not just to hear it or see it or however you came upon it, but then to create characters to walk us through how they were set up emotionally and through societal means and being disenfranchised that they would move in this direction? Because they're, they're, the characters are smart women. So what circumstances yeah. would lead them to to this space? And that is towards happiness and towards being accepted and to have a balance. Where, how did you, and most of us, I, we don't know that there were so many black people involved in this here and black women. How did you come upon it and why did you take it upon yourself? Because this is a huge project. Well, I happened to stumble across a documentary on People's Temple on KQED uh, several years ago, and I was fascinated by the debunking of the myths and stereotypes about People's Temple a la Jonestown, because like many folk, I just knew Jonestown, you know, and I was very young, I was about eight or nine years old when it went down. I just knew Jonestown through the grotesque sprawl of bodies and all of the, the caricaturing of people's temple as this site of maniacal uh, religious idolatry, uh, blind faith, you know, gullible acolytes who were basically following along like sheep to, you know, Jim Jones's megalomaniac mantra. So I knew nothing about the rich history of people's temple, what preceded and precipitated Jonestown and the historical context, not just of San Francisco, but, um, Indiana and its whole trajectory, you know, from Indianapolis to Ukiah, West Redwood Valley, to L.A. and to San Francisco. So I began researching all of those elements, all of those legs on the journey of People's Temple, you know, to Jonestown, you know, became extremely intrigued by the fact that there's this whole canon around People's Temple in Jonestown, which effectively excludes the authentic voices, experiences, and narratives of African-American women. You know, when African-American women were the main demographic in People's Temple and the main demographic in terms of those who perished in Jonestown. So this enraged me as a black feminist scholar, writer, and novelist. And I became more and more compelled 
by this erasure, by this lacuna, you know, by the fact that, you know, there have been so many books and, and, you know, so many representations of Jonestown that have excluded these voices, you know, and excluded the social history, you know, that compel black women to become involved, to be invested, and to give their lives for this movement. What has been um, some of the reactions from your book with uh, White Knight's Black Paradise? I think that women of color readers have been astounded by the complexity of the history, have attempted to connect this trajectory to what's happening now with African-American and, and Latino women, you know, when it comes to religious belief and investment and the fact that so many mainstream churches, you know, if we're talking about, you know, black churches or, you know, Latino Pentecostal churches rely upon, you know, the sweat equity and the strength and the behind the scenes leadership of women of color. But you still have, you know, these extremely entrenched hierarchies of masculinist, patriarchal, homophobic, transphobic, and heterosexist leadership. And so in some regards, People's Temple was an antidote to that, a superficial antidote at the end, but an antidote nonetheless. It was a refuge and a haven initially for women of color from all walks of life and from all ages who thought that this was going to be something significantly different from the kind of ossified and oppressive church structures that we have historically been engaged in. So women of color are, are resonating with the book on that level. Um, they're resonating with the dynamics among the characters. You know, it's, it's a multi-generational cast. I mean, some characters are entirely fictitious, some are composites, and some are based upon real-life individuals that were involved in People's Temple and immigrated to Jonestown. Did you interview any of the people who had uh, went through that experience? Yes. I was able to interview survivors, uh, both, you know, of, of the People's Temple movement, of Jonestown. I interviewed archivists, you know, who have compiled a, a lot of the rich material on the alternative considerations of Jonestown sites that was maintained by San Diego State University up until about a, a year or so ago. So I've done some of the legwork, but I'll have to say, you know, as a caveat, that it was difficult to talk to victims and survivors precisely because of the depth of the trauma and the tragedy. I'd imagine that it would be, and it's, it's interesting that there's writings coming from different directions about people who uh, actually experienced it themselves, uh, and part of it is the anniversary of it coming up. But for those who are not really aware, share with us what ultimately happened in Jonestown. For those who not really mm -hmm. have not seen the KQD or any other program, just sort of know, oh, Jonestown, but know the detail. What happened in um, the, the final thing that occurred there? There were over 900 people who perished in Jonestown. Uh, there were probably over a 1,000 or so who immigrated to Jonestown. Again, the immigration, the bulk of the immigration occurred in the late 1970s. The church perished on November 18, 1978, um, as a result of the demands, the exhortation 
of Jim Jones that everyone commit mass suicide. Everyone did not surrender to this demand. Um, you know, there were those who resisted. Uh, there were those who were forcibly injected with what is now the iconic, you know, cocktail of cyanide and flavor aid, and that's where we get, you know, this this character of drinking the Kool-Aid, which is highly inflammatory and offensive, you know, to survivors and victims, because that's not what went down. Not only was it not Kool-Aid, it was flavor aid, but people were forced to drink, or again, they were forcibly injected, and then there were some who elected to to drink the poison. But there's a whole range of discourse and argument about choice, you know, given these circumstances, you know, given the fact that this was a settlement, an agricultural settlement, that's supposed to be, you know, an independent a settlement, you know, for the growth of crops. It was supposed to be this racial utopia, this promised land where the community could more meaningfully articulate its communal living organization, you know, with extended families, um, you know, with, you know, agricultural, you know, crops that they were, you know, tending, um, you know, with the supposed egalitarian, you know, social development, you know, based upon, you know, socialist communes. That's not what went down. You know, it was extremely authoritarian. It was extremely brutal. It relied upon a whole slew of informants and loyalists to Jones and his underlings and lieutenants, you know, to really drive fear into, you know, the hearts and minds of the people within the settlement. It was racially hierarchical because you had predominantly, you know, white people who were lording over power within the settlement. And that was something that was forged when People's Temple was in the United States. So there was a whole constellation of problematic, you know, dynamics, of fatal, you know, brutal dynamics that occurred at Jonestown. And what I wanted to peel back was the demonization of black women that's occurred over the past few decades, you know, to, to really sort of examine the range of complicity, yes, but also the range of agency. You know, how did the two coexist within that space? And how did people's temple allow for a context for the coexistence of agency and complicity? So... The, the one of the things that I came out of when I was reading the book is that I had no idea that that saying "Don't drink the Kool-Aid" came from that. So that was a an, an aha moment because we hear it and again, and also it's become like pop culture saying that, and then hearing you put language to it, saying that that's offensive to those that survived that as well. Uh, what I'd like to do is to ask you to read an excerpt. Uh, from your uh, White Nights Black Paradise. Everyone's listening to KPFA, a Joplin's Bistro, cover to cover, and my guest, Ms. Hutchinson, um, her latest body of work, White Nights Black Paradise, if you could, because the writing is absolutely beautiful. It's challenging, the subject matter, but it was you've written it beautifully. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm going to, unfortunately, have to decline that because I'm standing outside of the school. I just got out of my class and I don't have the book on me. Okay. So then I do. So I will read from the okay, book. Okay, great. And then we can talk about that. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to, I think I'm going to start from the beginning. There's the two, their sister's journey. Okay. 
So this is from, this is chapter one. The drive from Modesto to Livermore was six degrees of cow dug, a deep, rich funk for each rest stop. They drove scrupulously, bonded in discipline, determined to make good time. Terrors fought to keep her pinched clothes pin nose inherited from her father's father, Afro Her sister, High, is that how you say her name, High? Yes. Had had an abortion two days ago and was still nursing cramps, babbling in white ties of fitful sleep. They had been driving for over five hours with only pit stops, and now it was time for a real one. Time for High to change her pad while Tyra stretched and thought about what came next. They'd powdered through the first several hundred miles with shots of coffee. Tyra's lime juice tonic and a tape player cribbed from the from their mother's collection of battered black machines that she used during her dabble with investigative journalism in Greenville. If they had a brain in their head, they got it because of her, their mother said. They didn't come from fried mush or monkeys. They came from big brains. I had to pee bad. Ty wanted to push through and drive as long as the gas held out, but the car was stuck behind a row of fat seamus tethered together in the fast lane like circus elephants. <laughs> I, you know, as challenging as the story is, it's the language and, and you creating fiction to sort of pull us in there. So this is where they're headed to. And then what happens after that for them? Well, they land up in Hayward, actually, initially, um, and Karen, who is an accountant by training, is trying to get a job at this relatively high-powered firm and finding that the barriers for an African-American lesbian are extremely intractable. And this is something that, that powers her particular arc, that she's a striver. She is in the, quote-unquote, talented tense mode critical but in that mode and sees the bay area sees san francisco ultimately you know as the space where she can tentatively transcend you know the, the trappings of race and of gender and sexuality and really has a rude awakening about the unlikelihood of that and so people's temple is in many regards a way for her to to gain leverage and become more politicized. She again identifies as an atheist. You know, she's very skeptical and very rejecting. You know, when she goes into the church, um, you know, by dint of her sister's interest, and then she meets um, another African American woman, falls in love with her, and becomes a little more vested in the culture and in the prospect of immigrating to Guyana, to Jonestown, and achieving their own space. You know, not being judged as an African-American lesbian, uh, not being demonized, you know, not being uh, dehumanized in that way. So that is, again, the impetus, you know, for her involvement and her investment and her conflict about all the violence that's occurring in People's Temple, you know, about the leadership, you know, being very uh, white supremacist at the end of the day, and about her skepticism, you know, with the whole God concept. What do, in doing your research, why do you think that 
in the very end, as you said, at the end of the day, it was white supremacy. Now, here's Jim Jones, who had adopted children. In fact, where his hometown was one of the first that had adopted an African-American child. Um, and just the rainbow family, whatever he called it. But at the end of the day, as you said, it, it became this. Why do you think that that occurred? Well, I think that it was inherent to the hierarchical and autocratic leadership structure of People's Temple. That this was a person, i.e. Jim Jones, who spoke liberation struggle, who spoke black nationalism, who preached the gospel of, you know, communal, you know, Christianity, invoked all these tropes, but at the end of the day, appointed white lieutenants and loyalists to be the heads of the supreme body of People's Temple, which is called the Planning Commission, you know, to you know, execute his orders of, of harassment and brutality uh, through the Temple Guard structure, which is primarily African-American, you know, working class young men. So in many regards, he was a white minstrel in blackface that he was actively appropriating, you know, all of the language and the metaphors of blackness in service to exploitation of his African-American disenfranchised membership. And that this is something that he had trafficked in since the 1950s. You know, at one point, you know, he connected with Father Divine, who was a leading African-American evangelist in the early 20th century, and attempted to take over his congregation, you know, predominantly African-American congregation, and he was thwarted. But, you know, Father Divine was a spiritual and political model for Jones. So uh, now a couple of things. How would um, the listening audience be able to purchase your book? Well, the book is available via my website, com. And it's also available by Amazon. Okay, White Knights, Black Paradise. And the spelling of her name is S-I-K-I-V-U, last name H-U-T-C-H-I-N-S-O-N. Tell us some of the other work that you, that you over your, your writing and researching, tell us a little bit more about the other writings as well. Well, I'm the first African-American woman to write a book on atheism in African-American secular humanist traditions called Moral Combat Black, Atheist, Gender Politics, and the Values War, which I think you cited at the beginning of our discussion. And I was compelled to write that because as those who are aware of the so-called you know, secular atheist humanist movement know it's predominantly white or has a, a predominantly white face. And I was interested in peeling back the layers of the onion of African-American involvement in secular movements and in black secular ideology and linking that with womanism and black feminism. So that was a book that I wrote in 2011, really as a response to the, the new atheist trajectory, which is oriented towards bashing Islam um, exalting the paradigm of Western enlightenment and to the detriment, you know, of quote unquote backward, overly religious evangelical 
of third world countries and, you know, exalting church-state separation and, and scientism as the antidote, you know, to all the ills, the so-called West. So before we go, we have like about 30 seconds. Again, give out your website number so that people and can go to Amazon as well, but your website so they can see other work that you've done in the past or be able to contact you if, if they wanted to. It's uh, SakibuHutchinson.com, S-I-K-I-B-U-H-U-T-C-H-I-N-S-O-N.com. I also blog at BlackFemLens.org, that's B-L-A-C-K, F is in Frank, E-M is in Mary, L-E-N-S.org. Thanks for being my guest, and thank you for this wonderful book and having your opinion out here in the world that we can read and get information we didn't get in the past. You've been listening to Jovelin's Cover to Cover, uh, Jovelin's Bistro, and my guest today, Ms. Hutchison's book, White Nights, Black Paradise. Thank you, Erica Bridgman, for being my engineer. Democracy Now! fans, Sunday, April 17th is Democracy Now!'s 20th anniversary. And what better way to celebrate than with a tribute to host Amy Goodman for her outstanding work. KPFA's Brian Edwards Teekert, host of Upfront, will take the stage at 7.30 p.m. to introduce Amy Goodman as she presents her new book, Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movement's changing America at the First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. This space is wheelchair.